Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. And this is The Argument. This week, it's goodbye, Donald Trump. Hello, Joe Biden. For the last episode of our series, the 46th, tracking the presidential transition and previewing the Biden era, we'll talk to one of the new president's economic advisors about how fast America can get well again in every sense of the word. But first, the Biden inaugural, and of course, the Trump farewell. So here's where the producers can insert Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the wheel has turned. The Trump era is finished. We're going to talk about his exit, the flurry of pardons and the sparsely populated send-off, and then Joe Biden's bid for unity in his inaugural address. But first, Michelle, we knew each other before the Trump presidency somewhat, but I wouldn't say all that well. And his administration encompassed the entire lifetime of this show. So I was wondering, before we sat down to taping, will you be an entirely different person? Is there a Michelle I've never known who showed up for this show? I think that, you know, if this had been normal times, the answer would be yes, because I've been in like an acute state of psychological crisis since the election of 2016. I mean, I just remember getting to the end of it, you know, I had a toddler and a baby and and getting to the end of it and feeling like, finally, I've reached the end of the marathon. You know, now I can relax. And just along with the sense of impending horror for the entire country and the entire world, I remember feeling like I was walking into a personal prison that I was not going to really fully be alive again until this time ended. You know, and unfortunately, nobody gets to be fully alive again because we are left living in the wreckage that Trump has bequeathed us, right? It's not like there gets to be a big cathartic celebration the way there was around the end of the Bush presidency or the Obama inauguration, right? A sense of Camelot-like possibilities. There's still, um, right? There's, uh, it, it, yes, it's, it's, those everything, possibilities. Everything is still completely, you know, horrible and dystopian and lonely and miserable. So in that sense, you know, it's just like another thing that Donald Trump has stolen from us is even the full measure of joy at his leaving. But, and yet, there must be, I mean, let's, you know, I, I feel like you're allowed to feel some... I definitely feel some... ...pleasure no. in watching. I mean, what was this not... Come on, I'm just trying to push you towards towards joy here, Michelle. I mean, if you had to script the ending for this presidency that you hated so much, setting aside the small business of the riot on Capitol Hill, having him wandering alone in the White House, unable to tweet, and unable to even get his own vice president to show up for his send-off... That seemed like a Michelle Goldberg scripted denouement. Well, look, I, I would say this. As you know, my final piece about this administration was called The Inevitable. 
right? And so, yes, there is a certain dark satisfaction in seeing things resolve kind of exactly as you always thought they would and should, especially when it didn't seem like that was going to happen three weeks ago, right? Three weeks ago, it seemed like even though he was going to leave, he was going to leave in a certain amount of triumph, still being, you know, the kind of warlord of this movement that he had created. And yes, there is satisfaction in not just his own fall, but in seeing many people who've been part of it, trying to distance themselves, trying to pretend that it never happened, trying to um, wash the eternal Trump stink off of them. I said the other day that somebody could make a lot of money if they just wanted to buy schadenfreude.com, which I checked and it's available, and just compile all of the TikToks of baffled QAnon supporters, right? There's like a whole rich genre of material, you know, but real joy has to be something more than just kind of joy in other people's suffering. Um, You know, that only goes so far. There are medieval theologians who argued that the blessed in heaven would would actually take some pleasure from the suffering of the damned in hell. Um, But, you know, to my sort of soft modern Catholic ears, that seems, even that seems a little harsh. But I just want to say this. I woke, I did wake up this morning, you know, and I have woken up every morning for the last five years or so. And I open my eyes and think, what happened? (laughs) And like, and there was, I did open my eyes and think, oh, nothing terrible probably happened while I was asleep. Um, And did feel a sense of like unaccustomed peace. So your peace is my slight hope i suppose that so i on we've gone back and forth on this show a bit in the last few weeks about the likelihood of a strong trump second act right or i guess it would be third or fourth or fifth fifth act or whatever it would be right where you know his resilient popularity among republicans means that he remains a dominant figure in the party, runs again in 2024, and any hope for a renewed or serious conservatism in America is sort of a hostage to the Trump phenomenon for another at least four years, right? So that's that's one of my fears. Right, and I think, and I think this is a separate conversation because I would argue that any hope for a renewed or serious conservatism is hostage to the factors that made Trump the standard bearer in the first place. Sure, and we disagree somewhat about those factors, but I guess all I wanted to say on that point, just to sort of stay with this moment for a minute, is that he did seem really diminished, in departing. And there, I mean, there is a sense in which the, his social media ban does seem to have weirdly altered the place he plays, maybe just mostly in the heads of the liberal media. But combining sort of his abandonment by his non-family supporters, <laughs> the disillusionment of the conspiracy theorists online, he went all the way in trying to fuse online conspiracy with his own insane ambition to have Mike Pence somehow make him president. And that failure, I think it has diminished him in ways that will linger, maybe not enough to prevent him from being the nominee in 2024. But it does seem like there's been a shift in his role in the ecosystem. As much as I have hated and feared Donald Trump, I think I predicted a few weeks ago 
that he would be a diminished figure in his post-presidency, you know, both because he's about to get hit by a barrage of lawsuits and criminal and civil investigations, and because so much of his power was tied up with power, right? It was kind of self-sustaining that he seemed invincible because of the daily shock that this person had become president and that he had all of these presidential favors to dole out and that he kind of kept people around him in this state of supplication that he just can't really do anymore. Yeah, I guess what what I think maybe we'll, we'll see, but like what was important about Twitter in part was not just sort of the news cycle driving element you describe, but even just the literal reality that, like, if you were a conservative who liked to watch the president own the libs, you could see it, you could just see it happening in real time on Twitter. Trump would tweet something and, you know, there would be 117 replies from liberals who were very clearly owned <laughs> in some sense by his tweet. Well, right? yeah, and, it is. And it is I mean, hard to capture that magic on Fox and Friends. I also just want to say that, like, and this is not, I think, the fault of liberals. It is extremely alarming and disorienting to have the president of the United States brutalize the country by tweeting racist nonsense and belligerent threats at all hours of the day and night. I'm not saying that liberals, I'm not saying it wasn't understandable. I'm just saying that those those replies to Trump where people would be like, you know, Mr. Trump, your time, <laughs> your time is at hand. And it Soon was. the swift arm of, 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 of Paul Mueller's justice will be upon you. Like, like, you know, yeah, I have, you know, some very dear friends who wrote those right. kind of tweets. So now just find um, and replace. I had a, I had a friend, I had a, a, a liberal friend who convinced me that once I broke and went just anti-Trump in everything I wrote, I should write the book called Trumpty Dump Dump. That that was sort of the, you know, the unused insult that was there for the taking. But all right, let's turn to Biden, because we did have the inauguration of a new president who totally owned me in his inaugural. No, not really. So how did you feel about the Biden inaugural? I loved it. I mean, I think and it's interesting (laughs) that like, you know, just as sort of Donald Trump was sort of burnished by the power of the presidency, I feel like you're seeing something similar with Joe Biden, you know, that he now just seems an elevated figure by nature of the office, but also by nature of the kind of crisis that he's inheriting. Um, The thing that I loved most about the inaugural was that there's a lot of different ways that Democratic politicians in particular have defined unity in the past and Democratic politicians throughout the whole Reagan era. And I think you could argue that the Reagan era has come to an end, even though I wouldn't have expected Joe Biden to be the one to mark its kind of completion. You know, but Democratic politicians have usually gestured towards unity by talking right, right? There was either the kind of Bill Clinton sister soldier moment, you know, they've done it either by showing kind of harshness in criminal justice, by embracing some sort of austerity, you know, now is the time that we can all come together and address the budget deficit. I think that in Joe Biden, you saw now is the time that we can all come together against racism and against the sort of thugs who stormed the Capitol. So it was like a version of unity that didn't triangulate against any part of the Democratic coalition and that very clearly sought to make kind of Trumpism the thing that we all must triumph over. 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's obviously the huge political opportunity open to Biden in the sense that he takes office with his the former incumbent suddenly reduced to a 34 percent approval rating and with the rival coalition associated with a, you know, insanely stupid but also frightening assault on the Capitol. I think there have been moments, though, of that kind of unity for liberalism before. Bill Clinton did a little bit of it, especially after the Oklahoma City bombing, sort of pivoting against anti-government sentiment on the right. But that it was also the theme of the beginning of the Obama era, where Obama was basically trying to define Rush Limbaugh as the leader of the opposition. If you read Obama's recent book, you know, he had defined himself so much as somebody who was a kind of postpartisan figure who had been able to cooperate with Republicans in the Illinois State House. And so he made, you know, sort of being able to strike deals with Republicans in Congress central to his political promise, which gave Republicans in Congress a veto power over his um, success. And he it took him way, way, way too long, I think, to understand that his gestures of reasonableness, you know, that sort of appointing Republicans to high-level defense positions, keeping the Recovery Act to under a trillion dollars so as not to sort of alarm deficit hawks. It took him way too long to realize that that was earning him precisely zero goodwill. And I think that the Biden administration is not similarly blinkered. But the core, maybe not the core, but a core difference between the situation then and now, and we can... be interested to get into this a bit with our guest in the second segment, but is that the Obama administration was filled with people who sincerely believed that the budget deficit was a big problem and that they needed to strike deals with Republicans for the sake of fiscal stability. Like, I talked to these people who worked in the Obama White House who sincerely thought that. Right. But the key and the, and the important thing is that those people are not working in the in the Biden administration, right? I mean, there's like a band getting back together element to the Biden administration, But it's really, I think, telling kind of which parts of the band, right? Because there are parts of Obama world that are being reimported into Washington and parts that are very clearly not. And so the people who think that are by and large not part of this new administration. And then that also just... Well, and also people don't, but also people don't think that as much anymore. Like, I I don't think the budget deficit is as big a problem as I imagined it to be then. There's been this genuine sea change based on inflation, right? And so, but what that means is that Biden has this opportunity to basically just sort of spend money (laughs) without raising taxes, which is, which is a kind of politically magical formula that was not been available to Democratic presidents. Well, and that's what I mean when I say that kind of Biden is, I think, inaugurating a post-Reagan era in a way that Obama was still kind of working within the intellectual constraints of Reaganism. Right. The political and intellectual memory of inflation as a major problem is almost sort of how you can put it. I should just say I feel a certain amount of relief on the beginning of the Biden presidency. I do think that the the symbolism of the inaugural was dark and forbidding and sort of, you know, had a kind of late American Republic vibe, right? You have this this sort of pandemic-ravaged, military-filled scene with, you know, a Democratic Party that's led by very, very old people and a Republican Party that's also led by very, very old people up on a podium with no crowd at all. The optics of it, I think, are, they're suggestive of 
the alienation of the American ruling class from broad swaths of the country that, you know, gave us Bernie, who was there in his, <laughs> in his like, Vermont, you know, Vermont getup that immediately became a meme and also gave us Trump. And I think the big, to me, the question hanging over the Biden presidency, you know, this is this is a establishment restoration with a more of a leftward push than in the Obama era, but it's still an establishment restoration. And the last time the establishment was in charge, we got a populist rebellion on the right and a socialist rebellion on the left. And to me, the big question for the Biden era is to what extent does the dark symbolism of this inaugural actually serve as sort of a prophecy of sort of just repeating that establishment alienates public rebellions and kind see, of dynamic. I, I read it totally differently. I mean, I didn't, see, I mean, to me, there's obviously dark symbolism in that this inauguration was taking place in the aftermath of this attack on the Capitol. But to me, it was a sort of like, triumphant isn't the wrong word, but, you know, kind of repudiation of that that two weeks after this went by, they were still able to go forward with it, you know, albeit without the crowds, although, you know, the kind of question of the crowds was already... Um, albeit with a military occupation of Washington, D.C. Yeah, but it's insane right. to blame that on, on Biden or to say that that is somehow... I'm not blaming it on Biden. Right. I'm just discussing the, you know, the symbolism of it. Right, right? but... Like, the, I, don't, I don't think it's Biden's fault, no. But it's it's telling for where we've been as a country. Yeah, I, I think guess. that's true too. But to me, it was more telling of sort of like what we have to transcend as a country about like the total darkness to which Trumpism brought us, which sort of it falls to Biden to try to repudiate and rebuild from, you know, so I feel like you're describing some a kind of Hunger Game-ish scenario it and, did. It did have a vaguely Hunger Games vibe. And yes, I didn't I, I, get that. Well, you, yeah. I mean, fu- fundamentally, you know, you wish they were a tick to the left, but you, you love and trust the people who are taking power, to some extent, right? Um. Yeah, I guess that's probably true. And so, yes, we've kind of gone through the valley, and now the de-Trumpification process can begin. Um. I will hold my distrust of the (laughs) returned establishment deep in my heart and wait to see what happens. And uh, when we come back, we will talk with an actual representative of the administration about some of that rebuilding that Michelle just mentioned. So stay with us. If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com opinion today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com opinion. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening.
And we're back. The Biden presidency has obviously substantial challenges ahead, not just the vaccination of all of America, but the quest for real economic recovery after the dislocations and disasters of 2020. And to discuss the new president's economic agenda and how the recovery might work itself out, we're lucky enough to have Jared Bernstein joining us. He was Joe Biden's chief economist and economic advisor during the Obama administration, and he'll be joining the new president's economic team. Jared, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. Um, What is your precise role in the new administration? I'm a member of something called the CEA, Council of Economic Advisors, and our job is to provide economic analysis to the president and vice president of ongoing developments, the kinds of reports that, you know, you write about in the New York Times, inflation, unemployment, things like that, but also in the sense of what Ross was just talking about, to help analyze, propose, quantify the impacts of the kinds of policies that uh, uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are proposing to get this economy uh, back on track and achieve their rescue and recovery agendas. Okay, so this is the second time that you are part of an incoming Democratic administration charged with rebuilding in the wake of the wreckage of a catastrophic Republican presidency. How have the underlying economic assumptions of the incoming Democratic administration changed. I mean, one of the things that Ross and I were just talking about is that Obama came into office with a lot of people who were very worried about the deficit, who were very worried about inflation, who also, in my opinion, were sort of overly concerned with proving their reasonableness to Republicans. Um, It seems like a lot of things have changed since then about just how mainstream Democrats think about economic policy. But yeah, can you talk about that? Yeah, there have been tons of changes. Uh, Some of them have to do, I'd say most of them have to do with real observed changes in the economy and a set of empirical research analyses and insights that, you know, weren't available back then because that was then and this is now. So things are different in really important ways in many of the areas you just described. And the meetings I'm in, because I was in kind of similar meetings, you know, 12 years ago with an economy that was also in a difficult place, are very different. And I think the differences uh, are in the area of deficits and debt, as you mentioned, kind of economic capacity, how low the unemployment rate can go. Economists used to think that if the unemployment rate got below 6%, that would be set off raging inflation. And then it became 5%, and then it became 4%, and then the unemployment rate was 3.5%, and inflation uh, was still below the kind of target that the Fed aims for. So clearly something has changed. There used to be an argument that budget deficits would crowd out private borrowing. In other words, public borrowing would crowd out private borrowing, and that would raise competition for loanable funds that would push up the interest rate and slow growth. That thinking has also changed based on, I think, very solid empirics. Now, that said, I want to be very clear, and he's been very clear, that when it comes to permanent, long-term, build-back-better kinds of programs and priorities, those still should be paid for. Uh, But uh, they should be paid for with very progressive taxation, which is another important part of the agenda, pushing back on on the inequalities that we've seen. So I think those are some of the areas. We can talk about trade, minimum wages, unions. I think a lot of really important progressive insights have uh, prevailed in recent years. So do you think that the incoming administration has sort of 
changed with regards to its expectations of Republicans? I mean, again, I think there was an expectation when Obama became president that given the scale of the crisis, Republicans were going to want to be part of the solution. We're going to want to work in good faith and, you know, sort of waiting for that to happen slowed Obama down quite a bit. How much do you think the new administration is sort of willing to push forward unilaterally and how much can they do unilaterally or with a sort of bare majority in in the Senate? Because that's more of a political question, I'm going to just say a little bit about that. It's from my own experience, though, which is hopefully relevant. So I used to go up to Capitol Hill in recent years and testify. More than once, Republicans pulled me aside and said, there is stuff we'd like to do with your team, but we can't do it because of President Trump. Probably the main issue there was infrastructure. There are lots of Republicans who would like to invest in infrastructure, but Trump never had a plan. I mean, they said they had a plan. It was an asterisk. It was meaningless. Wait, so are you saying that we're going to have an infrastructure week and it's going to be about infrastructure? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I don't know about a week, but I am saying that I think there's real promise for bipartisan action on infrastructure. And it's not just that. There are a lot of Republicans who would recognize how important it is to gain control of this virus, to distribute the vaccine, and to implement the president's plan, which is, as I'm sure you've been hearing, I know the Times has been writing about, is a very deep, comprehensive plan to finally get this crisis under control, including testing and tracing, but also distribution of the vaccine, which is so critical. There are Republican governors who need help, who need assistance. There are constituents in Republican states who need relief, who need help with education, who need help with their indebtedness. So I think there's a lot more untapped demand for some of the kinds of bipartisan relief and rebuilding, you know, healthcare is another area, that President Biden has long tapped and long believed in. Now, whether the politics of, you know, Senate machinations will get us there, whether we're talking about regular order or a reconciliation where, where you, you kind of get around the filibuster that way, that, that, that's to be seen. But I can tell you, uh, Michelle and Ross, that there is much more untapped demand for bipartisan policy than you would recognize, you know, in the age of Trump. I think one of the things that brought us Trump is that economically progressive policies are often more popular than Democratic politicians. And you certainly see that with the minimum wage, right? A kind of minimum wage hike passed in Florida, even as Florida voted to reelect Trump. What are the possibilities specifically? I mean, I know there's a $15 minimum wage in the um, new relief package. What do you think are the possibilities for actually getting that done? I think the possibilities are considerable. It is very much the case, as you've suggested, that there is, I think, a more acute understanding among you know, many Democrats, but some Republicans, that you really have to help people who've been left behind. I mean, every day I am confronted with the observation that the stock market is booming and so are lines at uh, food pantries. And, you know, the stock market's up and poverty's up. And and this this K-shaped dynamic in the recovery, you know, that's a real thing. And it's not just happening in blue places, it's happening in red places too. So you can hear, you know, populist Republicans talk about issues you know, familiar to those who are listening to Trump. But of course, Trump was always the falsest of false prophets in this regard and talked about helping people who've been left behind while actively pursuing policies to hurt them. <laughs> Biden and Harris you know, are very much committed uh, to these agendas. And you know, if you look at their policy 
papers so far, if you look at what they've done, if you look at what they've proposed so far, if you look at that spate of executive orders that came out, you'll see precisely that. This is not, you know, reality TV pr- progressivism. It's reality progressivism. One striking thing about the Trump era was that independent of your opinions on Trump's economic policy or budget priorities, the Trump economy pre-pandemic was in fact the best economy for low-wage workers in the United States that we've had in, you know, at maybe 20 years, maybe slightly longer than that. Um, and obviously the pandemic itself came along and put an end to that and you've entered the K-shaped dynamic you're describing. But what lessons do you take from that Trump success? I mean, I, I assume that you're going to say that it's, you know, mostly just a happy accident and, you know, it was all baked into the Obama economy. But there really is a shift between how well low-wage workers do 2015 to 2019, let's say, mm-hmm. and how they did for most of the Obama era. Why, why is that? No, it's a great question and an important question. First of all, let me say that I think the underlying truth of my assertions can be seen that the minute that macroeconomic backdrop evaporated because of the crisis, you saw the embedded inequalities, you saw them just explode, whether it was in healthcare, whether it was in in housing, whether it was in racial equity, whether it was in uh, nutritional support, education, all of that was right under the surface. But you're correct. You know, the surface if you look at, say, the unemployment rate or if you look at uh, wage growth for low-wage workers, was strong. And I mean, the surface, are, and to be clear, when you say the surface, you mean literally how much money people are making. Yeah, right? I, don't mean surf, I don't mean surface is superficial. I mean, you are talking about true facts, uh, Ross, and there are very important ones. And, and I actually think Trump's fingerprints are on sort of one half of that equation. The reason the unemployment rate fell uh, to such low rates, and if I shouldn't presume you or anyone else has followed uh, my lifetime work, but uh, it's been all about the benefits of full employment. That's what I've written numerous books about. It's what my career has been kind of about, trying to convince the Federal Reserve and other critical authorities that we can sustain a much lower unemployment rate than economists formerly thought, and that it won't be until we get to that rate that we're going to start to pull people who've traditionally been left behind back into the job market or create enough pressure that low-wage workers will finally get the boost uh, they deserve. And it is true that the labor market under Trump did certainly close in on full employment. Now, Half of that, or three quarters of it, has to do with the Federal Reserve actually allowing that to happen. And for that, I give a ton of credit to Chair Jay Powell and lots of other members of the Fed who were willing to toss out outdated and inaccurate economic you know, beliefs about how low things could go without price pressures. But Trump— In part with Trump on Twitter demanding that they do so. And Trump did yeah. appoint Powell. Yeah. <laughs> so that's true, even if he, he kind of turned on him. But he, but he turned so, on them for reasons that you think were correct when Powell tightened too soon, right? So here's I'm the, just trying he, to get were, you to be pro-Trump, Jared. I'm, yeah, I'm, well, that, I'm, I'm looking for that moment. That's not going to happen. But, but where Trump's fingerprints were here, it was... Um, so the tax cuts were terribly targeted fiscal policy. By shifting all of that resource, all those tax cuts to the top of the scale... You know, you helped a lot of people who, trust me, didn't need the help, and you you left a lot of people behind. However, there was considerable fiscal impulse. That is, that kind of fiscal policy helped create more economic demand than would have otherwise been the case. And we happened to have a Federal Reserve that was saying, hmm, 
The jobless rate is falling and inflation isn't accelerating. In fact, if anything, inflation seems to be missing its target to the downside. So it is true that Trump you know, put his foot on the fiscal pedal in a very misdirected way, but it did help to create more demand and the Fed accommodated that. We got to a place that was the tightest job market in 50 years and, and lots of good things happened. I think the, the lesson we have to learn there are some of the lessons I was talking to Michelle about a second ago, which is how hot we can run this economy and how a lot of people simply don't get reached unless we run it that hot. So how much of that, what you're talking about, was just about sort of Trump not caring about traditional conservative orthodoxies, right? That sort of Trump, you know, the kind of Reagan era finally and fundamentally ended. I mean, I know that, you know, Republicans often don't care about deficits when they're in power, but they really ended um, with Donald Trump. Yeah, I wouldn't go there. You know, I guess I don't really see it that way, Michelle, for precisely the reason you said. I mean, there was nothing Trump did in the scenario I just outlined that was outside the realm of traditional republicanism, which is cutting taxes for the wealthy and not caring about the budget deficit. You know, they're called them uh, deficit mm-hmm. chicken hawks. That is, you know, <laughs> they, they pretend to be deficit hawks, but they're, they're not. It's, it's purely a political ploy. I think where Trump bucked republicanism was on trade policy and, and his, uh, his tariffs and his isolationism there. But I don't think that played much of a role in the economic dynamics we're describing. But maybe what Trump bucked was actually more what a lot of smart monetary policy people have complained about in the Obama era, right? Which was this sense that the Obama White House was too focused on fiscal policy, didn't pay close enough attention to monetary policy, didn't didn't sort of prioritize the Fed, basically. Um, whereas Trump, you know, for, for better or worse, was folk very focused on what the Fed was doing. I mean, that that does seem like a shift in liberalism's headspace since the Obama era, that the smart liberals think a lot about monetary policy now in a way that maybe not everybody in the Obama White House did. Not to make you you know, critical of anyone. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I talk to lots of folks. I really believe they they tune out politics in ways that, you know, we want them to. Uh, That may sound like wishful thinking, but I think it's largely true. I think the difference there is less a political one, Ross, and just more about the insights that many of the parameters that economists believe to be the case we call them star variables. I don't want to get too in the weeds here, but there's Y star, R star, U star. <laughs> and what these are, are these are the capacity variables. They, they say Y star is, is the capacity of GDP, how much GDP you can have before the glass starts overflowing and you get more inflation. U star is how low the unemployment rate can go before if you go any lower, you're just going to get spiraling inflation. So the Federal Reserve and economists in general had been driven by these capacity notions that were wrongly calibrated. So it took kind of an empirical change. I mean, in a way, economics has served us, at least cutting edge economics, has served us uniquely well by getting into areas that were thought to be tried and true and, you know, disprove the idea that public borrowing crowds out private borrowing or that the unemployment rate can't go below four and a half percent or that, you know, we really know what GDP capacity is. One of the most important things that happened in this space is Chair Jerome Powell standing up and saying, guess what? We don't really know what those variables are, so we have to be data-driven. And, uh, you know, I think that's probably more an economic development than a political one, but it's critically important. So what are the constraints then on liberalism Mm -hmm. right now? Because, we, you know, we 
lived through a two-term Democratic president where we had a lot of arguments. Um, anyone who wrote about policy or, you know, in the case of op-ed columnists, pretended to understand policy, where there was sort of this assumption that, you know, liberals wanted spending, but it had to be paid for with new taxes. And that created a political constraint on what liberals could do because new taxes for the middle class or upper middle class are fairly unpopular. And that, that was sort of a normal way of thinking about policy. Right now, it feels like, you know, the shift the shifts that you're discussing in terms of inflation expectations and so on just creates a lot more room for Democrats to spend money without taxing anyone. And so I'm curious where you think the constraints are on that kind of agenda. Well, you mentioned one. You said inflation expectations, and I was just going to say inflation. So inflation expectations is what people expect in terms of where inflation is going. That turns out to be really important uh, because if they expect that inflation is going to be around 2%, if it goes up to 2.5%, they kind of think, oh, it's going to come back down and they don't you know, freak out. But inflation remains a constraint. There is a capacity out there. We just don't know where it is. And if we hit it, I guess the way I, I know I used this analogy before, but I actually think it's really useful. I mean, if you think of the economy as a glass of water and you pour water into the glass, you know, we thought that we were at the rim of the glass and we couldn't pour any more water, meaning any more demand, any more jobs and incomes, especially for people in the bottom half. We couldn't pour any more water in there. And then it turned out we poured some more in and we had more room than we thought. But the rim is out there somewhere. And, and you could get spillage, which in this analogy means inflation. So constraints exist. And, you know, I, I actually would you know, urge folks to think more about them because they're out there. When do you think that people will start to feel the Biden economy in their actual lives? The rescue package, uh, you know, that's going, I, I firmly believe that's going to get some traction on the Hill. Uh, I know that people are already debating this and that and positioning themselves, but new presidents get uh, at least a bite or two at the apple almost by default. And Joe Biden has a long history of working with a lot of the people we're talking about here. I saw him do it back in the Obama years, and he's going to do it again. He's already doing it. So I'm confident in, in that regard. I think the distribution of the vaccine and the work of that team led by uh, Jeff Zients, Ron Klain is in the mix. I mean, these are folks who have tremendous logistical experience. And if you listen to the authority with which they're talking about wrapping their arms around this, I'm confident people are going to start feeling that soon. I, I myself have, uh, you know, just got to notice that my uh, my vaccine letter got bumped up in Virginia because they're anticipating some of the stocks getting out, you know, quicker than than they thought before. So, you know, I'm not the person that we're targeting this stuff to, of course, but... All right, let me, let me ask a more, the more cynical version of Michelle's question, which is, if you look at what the Biden administration is promising to do formally with vaccines, right, the goal is 100 million vaccinations in the first 100 days, we are already roughly on track for that, given vaccination rates over the last two weeks of the Trump administration. Similarly, with the economy... You know, Morgan Stanley are predicting basically that you get a mini boom almost no matter what. People have saved a lot of money that they're ready to spend. So you get sort of effectively a private sector stimulus. So I guess my two part question is, is there a way in which the administration might be deliberately under promising here, like especially on vaccination? And two, for those of us, you know, who are a little cynical, what would happen that would prove that the Biden administration had done something really important mm -hmm. and novel, as opposed to just having the prior rate of vaccinations and economic recovery sort of take effect naturally. 
Yeah, I, I can actually give you a very concrete answer to that. Excellent. Which, uh, be interested in your response to. So, but before I get there, let me just say that I'm sorry. I, I you know, we probably disagree a little bit with your premise. I firmly believe that the agenda that you're hearing from uh, the incoming administration on both virus control and vaccine distribution is ambitious but achievable. And uh, I think anyone who's watched the last few months in this and knows what we're walking into and the lack of information that was provided in the transition you know, would agree with that. But let me give a more direct answer. So you are correct, Ross that there are, it's something I pay a lot of attention to. I think there are very significant pent up savings in this economy. We might be talking about, you know, well over a trillion dollars of excess savings by, you know, affluent people who just weren't able to spend the way they usually did. And when it's safe to go back into the water, you know, they go out and spend more. And yes, that's going to generate faster growth post vaccine distribution, you know, later this year. But here's the direct answer to your question. That's not the metric by which the Biden administration is going to judge its success. Um, yes, we're certainly going to be talking about uh, high growth rates. And if unemployment falls, you know, you'll see people like me out there in front of the TV cameras touting it. And that's that's one of the things we'll do. But <laughs> And on podcasts. Uh, yes. But it's got to be that lower leg of the K that we're reaching. It can't just be a GDP, a macroeconomic, or even just an unemployment rate success. We have to bring down poverty rates. And I said I was going to be concrete. One of the proposals in the Rescue Act is to significantly expand the child tax credit, which is a refundable tax credit uh, that disproportionately helps low-income families. Or I should say, the way we've proposed to reform it, and there's been congressional proposals as well in this spirit, um, it will become fully refundable to low-income people in a way it hasn't before, and it will reach tens of millions of kids who've been left behind. So, Ross, I'm not just talking macro. I'm talking poverty. I'm talking micro. I'm talking reaching people who've been left behind. And I guess the question I wanted to ask you is this idea of expanding a child tax credit and getting money to people with kids is something that Republicans, you know, Mike Lee, Marco Rubio, have stood up and supported. Can we count on your touting uh, this idea? Is it something you support? I think I already touted it on Twitter, and I think I cast it as the reward for my column saying that, you know, <laughs> Democrats should nominate Biden. <laughs> so, no, I'm, I'm, I'm all in, and I guess this will be my last question to you, right, which is that Democrats have sort of talked themselves into at least a temporary expansion of the tax credit by thinking about it in terms, the terms you just described, sort of fighting economic inequality and fighting child poverty. And I think those are laudable goals. But, you know, one of the things that interests my unique little cult of conservatives in this issue is that we think it's connected to this broader question of the fact that the United States doesn't have enough babies, right? And that, you know, which is something, a problem that has gotten somewhat worse in the pandemic era. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if there's a rebound after it. And, you know, that everything you've been talking about in terms of sort of the strange economic reality we're in, where there seem, you know, inflation seems to be less of a problem. It doesn't seem like federal spending is crowding out private investment to the same degree, to our little sect, and not only to us, that is connected to the realities of, you know, the U.S. and the entire developed world being this sort of aging, low birth rate, sort of decrepit society. And so my, what I'm interested in is whether liberalism can get interested in that 
bigger problem and see family policy, in fact, as sort of not just a tool to fight child poverty, but a tool to fight stagnation and decadence and societal aging writ large. <laughs> yeah, I want to say that there's an, there's another angle of this or another part of this, which probably is are terms that Democrats are more comfortable thinking in, which is that this you know, kind of crisis has had such a devastating impact on women in the workforce in particular, you know, and it's not surprising to me that people are hesitant to have more children in this situation, right? I mean, I, with all of my manifold privileges, have found being a parent in this pandemic to be by far the most brutal and gutting experience of my life and infinitely harder than having a newborn and a toddler. And so, you know, and I have support. Um, I Why somebody would decide to walk into this buzzsaw is kind of a testament to the human spirit that anybody is having babies right now. And so I guess my question is what the administration is going to be doing to address the kind of particular economic burdens and huge economic setbacks that we've seen for women in the workforce, which I think is connected to people's hesitancy to have more children. So let me see if I can unite those two questions, which uh, is a test of my acumen. So first of all, one of the things I was thinking about when you were talking, Michelle, was the Biden-Harris plan to reopen schools, which is, I believe that if this plan succeeds, every parent is going to put a big picture of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in their living room. (laughs) Oh, I'll tattoo it on my arm. (laughs) Because that would be, you know, an absolutely transformative experience. And that plan is one of the deepest, most carefully thought out parts of the agenda. And I'm optimistic that it can be achieved with congressional support. So the way I would unite your two questions is, Ross, I got to say, you know, I, I don't necessarily think in the terms that you just described, except you mentioned something about stagnation. And th- that is a term I do think about. And, you know, economists talk about something called secular stagnation, which just means, uh, you know, an economy that's growing slower than it should, even in periods of expansion, that it just kind of never realizes its potential. And that, to me, is the key word that links both of your questions. I think what a responsible, progressive government should do in the economic sphere is create an atmosphere where people can realize their potential. People of color whose potential is dampened by systemic racism, immigrants whose potential is dampened by xenophobia, low-income people whose potential is dampened because they never have the kind of welcoming economic environment you know, that people like myself have always enjoyed. So if we do our job, we're going to create an economy that's welcoming to everyone who is interested in realizing their economic, spiritual, and familial potentials. And, I, I, you know, Ross, you may sort of dictate more what that looks like than I would. People will have more. You know, maybe people have less babies, maybe they'll have more babies. I don't know. I, I wash my hands of that. But if they had fewer babies, we'd get more secular stagnation, right? We have, not on a per capita basis. We have to create the environment where everyone can achieve their potential because the economic opportunity out there for them is not thwarted by all of these structural blockages. And to me, that's that's at the heart of building back better. All right. Well, I'd like to spend another hour pushing you towards full pronatalism. <laughs> um, but you do have an you do have an administration to join. Um, exactly. But before we let you go, I believe that you have been willing, you have expressed a willingness to offer our 
recommendation for this week, where we offer our listeners something to take their minds off, in this case, the transition of power in Washington, D.C. I sure do. And I think it's uh, such an important category right now. So I, I'm a lover of music. My actual my, my bachelor's degree is actually in music from the Manhattan School of Music. And um, one of my favorite classical pieces is a piece called The Italian Concerto by Johann Sebastian Bach. And the Italian concerto is not a concerto like with a, you know, a violin and an orchestra. It's just a piano piece. The version of this by a pianist named Alessia della Rocca is just the most amazing, uplifting piece of music I can think of. The idea that the human mind created this piece of music is something I take deep solace in just about every month. <laughs> so I think we have gone through two years of this show and many, many recommendations without having a recommendation for classical music, which tells you something about the degree <laughs> of Philistinism in the op-ed department of the New York Times. Um, but, you know, I had said at the beginning of the show that there was a part where I said, you know, insert Beethoven's Ninth Symphony here. That's true. And no, so maybe right. we it, can insert this instead. Tell us one more time. The recommendation is... The Italian Concerto by Johann Sebastian Bach, played by the pianist Alessia Della Rocca. Terrific. Jared Bernstein, thank you so much for being our guest on The Argument. Yes, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. And good luck. Thank you. And that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. We're taking next week off but we'll be back on Wednesday, February 5th. Not Friday, but Wednesday, which will be the show's new published day going forward. The Argument is a production of the New York Times Opinion Section. Our team includes Alison Bruzek, Vishaka Darba, Elisa Gutierrez, Phoebe Lett, Isaac Jones, Paula Schumann, Kate Sinclair, and Kathy Tu. We'll talk to you again deeper into the Biden era. Jared, I was saying the other day that like we when we were talking about this episode, the fact that people are now going to say like Jared said, and it's not going to be Jared Kushner gave me such incredible joy.